The following episode of From the Vault will be discussing suicide. If you've been considering suicide, please understand that you are not alone. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is there for you. We can all help prevent suicide. The Lifeline provides 24-7 free and confidential support for people who are in distress, prevention, and crisis resources for you or your loved ones and also the best practices for professionals. If suicide has been a thought for some time or you know someone who might be considering it, please call the Lifeline. That's 1-800-273-8255. Once again, that's 1-800-273-8255. Or you can visit suicidepreventionlifeline.org and you can chat with a counselor on there as well. Again, that's Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of From the Vault, right here on Anchor and wherever you can find your favorite podcast. I'm Jason Futch, and thank you all for tuning in as we talk about the Hendricksville John Doe. Now, this is a very interesting case. It's a case that's not really touched up on as much, but should be. And I'm happy to be covering this with some very special guests here shortly. But before I do, I want to talk to you all about how we get our episodes produced. So I have a good buddy of mine who lives in Austin, Texas. His name is Zach Bebo. And he's actually visiting me in Florida. It's a special treat because normally we don't get an opportunity to hang out much, but he's taking an extended vacation here in Florida. And I figured I'd go ahead and introduce you guys to the man who makes this show possible. Zach, how are you doing, my friend? I am doing amazingly. How are you doing tonight, Jason? Oh, I'm doing great. It's pretty exciting. Uh, it's an exciting evening, and uh, you know we're going to be talking about the Hendricksville John Doe. Uh, and the case is not exciting. I will clarify that it's not an exciting topic. I don't, I don't, you know, giggle with joy when I talk about these kind of cases. But it's very interesting to talk about him. You know, it brings in a new perspective in some ways. But then when we're done recording, I ship it off to you in Austin. Well, you're here in Florida, so you're basically getting that ear service now right I'm now. I'm just behind you instead of like thousand miles away or whatever i'm right behind you working on it so you gotta i'm standing right behind you with every note and yeah right well, there yeah and so <laughs> you get an opportunity to see what we actually do when we record these episodes like you can see my notes here you can see what we're doing here and you're going to get an opportunity to see us in action so once you are done i just send it to you you just splice it up and then send it back it's like performing surgery ain't it <laughs> I, that's what I call it a lot. When you have certain things in the audio that need to be sculpted out, I call it, uh, it's, it's very surgical. <laughs> so that's a word I've been using a lot with some of the episodes. Yeah. But 
Um, I love working on it. It's a blast working with you, doing the music work and everything. It's, yeah. an, abs- it's an absolute blast. Which is, should be noted, he is also the composer of my theme song and also the end credits when you hear it. And a lot of it's based on some of the more like modern synthwave bands like yeah. uh, Dance with the Dead, which was heavily influenced. Well, you in sent me, what was the name of the Dance with the Dead song that you sent that me? That House. That House. Yeah, so what I did with I, I consider that song a collaborative effort. Yes. Because that was my writing style. And the thing is, I played guitar for 20 years. 20, guitar has been my main focus as an instrument and as a musician. Production is something that's newer to me. And it's almost like I'm learning a new instrument as I delve in. So I learned a lot working on that song and mm. took the song. It's an amazing song, That House. Yeah. And just did my own writing spin on it. So I consider that a collaborative effort yeah. between you and me in so sure. far as that was my writing style. But yeah. I wouldn't have I had I love Synthwave, but I wouldn't have found that song. You found it for me. <laughs> yeah, and then also a lot of people don't know this, but that the, the the end credit theme that you created is actually based on the missing persons theme from Unsolved Mysteries. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Which, because I was like, you know, I, I want to be able to start heavy, but end soft. And you did exactly that. Yeah. And I think you do a great job. And I know probably prior to season two of this series, you're going to be, we're going to be doing a music video together on this, yes. uh, collaborating a music video. And right. I'm very excited about that project. So, yeah. And the um, thing is, too, is that flute, I, I think it was a flute that was used in that track, the exact instrument that I used a VST for. Yeah. I love that's the classic. Like you put that in any song or track you compose with that, it's immediately it's unsolved <laughs> mysteries right there. Right, exactly. It's like yeah. it's almost I say we we were listening to Synthwave in the car um, yeah. during their shifts the last couple of days. And I said some of those synths, like the old school DX, the Yamaha DX7s and whatnot, yeah. that the plugins are based. It's like putting chocolate on ice cream. You put those synths on anything and it's audio food. Hell it's yeah. audio dessert. Hey, you can't I, go I, wrong. I love it. I mean, it's 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 basically love like it. my ears. You know, <laughs> they yeah. just have. <laughs> I'm happy to hear. I, I, we'll you know, my this. my ears have a, an orgasm when I hear that theme song every single. <laughs> That's time. That's what I like to hear. That's uh, what and, we're and, aiming for here. And I remember when you first sent me the track by itself. Like I must have put that sucker on repeat many times, yeah. and it was just phenomenal. Thank you. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. And your efforts uh, definitely do not go unnoticed yeah. so there's that and also you know we'll be collaborating on future projects as absolutely. well so we i'm looking really excited yeah absolutely um but yeah i mean thank you for being here and hanging always, out always and, man uh, having a blast where we've been hanging we're gonna be hanging for a few more weeks at least yeah and we're having a great time probably a drink after this and chill out and it's it's been a blast man, man. It's you know we should great. have a drink with uh some ladies that i know Ooh. Yeah, we should have a drink with some ladies I know. Yeah. Uh, although you know, it, have be, it has to be one of those virtual uh, meetups because our guests. Oh, we just, today... we've got COVID nineteen. <laughs> you got to keep away from the. We got to keep away from the Rona. Yes, exactly. Although I did still get my some... I did get my Moderna shot just recently, so <laughs> I still uh, I still uh, I've been a bad boy. I need to get I need to get Rona proof. Yes, you do. Uh, but on that note, the ladies I want to have a drink with here after the show are two of my good friends from Crime Time Nerds, Nat and Ash. I'm happy you guys are here. Ah, we're so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having us, Jason. It's awesome. Yeah, awesome. yeah thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no worries. Uh, you know, it's very exciting. And I think this was actually a long time coming because yeah. we have always been talking about getting you guys on the show 
and being able to do some kind of a collaboration. Yeah. And with Nick out right now on personal leave, this was a perfect opportunity yeah. for us to do this. It, it was great because I know we've talked off and on about this for months now. So it was really exciting to actually find a really good case that fit both of us really well. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to have to come on over and uh, hang out on Crime Time Nerds, too, at some point. So. Oh, definitely. Oh. Absolutely. I, I I would definitely be down for that. Because I, I, I love a good mystery, as you oh, know. Oh, yeah. Us too. And yeah, in this case we're going to be talking about today, the Hendricksville John Doe, also known as the DeKalb County John Doe, is a big mystery because... This And this is a case that's not really talked about that often. No. You don't really hear about it. Although it is actually one of the very first John Doe cases that you find on Doe Network. Yep. It's like a few notches underneath the Bibb County John Doe from 61. And that case in itself is a very interesting one, which I covered when I was recording under True Cold Case Files. And that, yeah, it's just a very interesting case. It's so funny that you said that, too, because yeah. I was thinking about this and I hadn't realized until, you know, when we were talking about it at first, mm-hmm. I wasn't able to really bring forth the image of DeKalb County John Doe. And then I was Googling some information and I, and sure enough, that was the image. And I'm like, oh, I've seen his image yeah. tons of times. Right. And I had never really just read it. And so and, it was and interesting. That's the thing. And that's the thing, too, is I think with the way the facial reconstruction is made, I think a lot of people get turned off by it. And it's on old. top of that, it's old and then on top of that when you read the synopsis it's kind of brief so it kind of turns people away but when you have people who actually study the case and they add a little more information Mm -hmm. then it becomes very interesting like what we're about to do here (laughs) yeah when you deep dive into this case like on the surface level you're not going to find much just with the web search but when you start getting into like some old uh articles and stuff this case is fascinating oh yeah Yeah. it really is i actually remember (laughs) i texted nat today and i was like wow i'm really excited for this because this is fascinating. It's layers upon layers with this one. Oh, absolutely. We'll be digging into this pretty deep. And I think this is probably like maybe one of the very first episodes of any podcast to ever cover this case. So I'm wondering how this will go, (laughs) uh, which I think will be great. Because, you know, we've also been known to publish podcasts on cases that really never got that publicity that it deserves. And I think the Hendricksville case will be one of those. On a side note, I do want to add that we are using resources on the Internet for this episode. And I did try to contact the Alabama Bureau of Investigation by email and by phone, but I was never able to get anybody on the horn. And so with that being said, they did not respond in time for the episode. So we're using the best resources available at the moment. So we're using internet links and we're also using uh, newspapers.com, which is one of my favorite uh, resources. There's that. Yeah, I I fully admit I have a a newspapers.com obsession right now. (laughs) Oh, me too. Me too. It's an addiction. (laughs) Always. (laughs) But before we do start today's episode, I do want to remind everybody that today's episode is sponsored by crimewatchers.net in pursuit of the missing, the unidentified, and and justice. Every case that we cover here on From the Vault, including today's case, the Damon Hunter case, you can find on Crime Watchers. So go ahead. It's free. Sign up for a free account. Get started on the conversation. And if your case is not on Crime Watchers, start a new thread because the most important thing on these cases is discussing it. Sometimes the discussions will help in solving a crime. With that being said, we'll go ahead and start digging into this case. So DeKalb County, Alabama was a relatively calm and quiet county in the early fall of 1991. 
September had begun to bring fall into the town of Hendricksville, which is a rural town in Alabama, and even to this day, DeKalb County is a pretty small area as well, so you just drive through, you might miss it. Around this time, a pair of hunters were traipsing through the woods around the intersection of DeKalb County 51 and Alabama 277, near the Etowah County line, and it's actually kind of situated just off of the interstate. The hunters would discover a site that no person should ever bear witness to. Hanging from a tree was the partially decomposed skeletal remains of a man. Now, Nat Nash, y'all live in Vermont, and you're surrounded by Mother Nature. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I'm sure y'all have had your run-ins with animal carcasses out there, but... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What would you say if you found a man hanging from a tree, partially decomposed oh, or still full of its meat? I, I couldn't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine. I mean, I almost think you go into shock at that point when you yeah. when, it, mm-hmm. when you're starting. I, at first, I think you don't even process what you've seen. You're like right. your brain kind of just goes into like trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. And then I think that once realization hits, then you're like, "Yep, okay, what do I do?" And then, so then it's the does my phone has service to call? Somebody? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> that would be my well, next steps. Except well, in it's 19- funny though. In 1991, though, they did not have cell phones. Uh, yeah. That, or yeah. at least the cell phones that we know and love to this day. Oh yeah, no, no. There was you had the like clunky. And most yeah. people, everyday people the, didn't have these. These were like wealthy folks that had these. Yeah. They were giant. Exactly. They, they, like you could probably build a house with I them. I think they even still had to be pretty much plugged in. They couldn't go far. Mm-hmm. They didn't have right. any charge. Yeah. And, you know, we think about some of the technology that we cherish today. But back then they didn't have that kind of right. technology. So they probably had to go to the nearest gas station, which was maybe mm-hmm. not that far. Or depending on how rural this area is it could have been a bit of a distance because I know in the uh, fly Creek Jane Doe case, which she's since been identified as Sandy Morden, when the uh, gold panners had found her remains, they actually had to go about 10 miles out of the way to report the body. Honestly, that makes sense because here in Vermont, like even Mm -hmm. where I live, there is a gas station, but after my town, you're going to be going probably a good seven, five, seven minutes Mm -hmm. to get to another gas station so and that's a long walk yeah oh, you get turned drive. around and oof you like back road even yeah. now i'm like i have to say my dad always tells me to carry a paper map i never do i always have my phone doing my gps for me and you mm-hmm. take a wrong turn man and oh mm-hmm. you might really get lost <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah you know i'm a commercial vehicle driver so yeah you can't really always depend on gps and my no. field, no. so Otherwise, you might be on a log road with a bridge that has an eight-foot clearance. Oh, so that yeah. could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even imagine. But yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you're out in the woods and stuff, it, it's just you're so alone. And I think when yeah. you you don't really realize how alone. And I think coming across like skeletal remains at that point really kind of like hits home of like just how frail we are in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like this guy knew exactly where he was going to hang himself at. Mm -hmm. And he probably did not want to be found. So he figured, okay, well, I think I'm going to go find a nice thick branch in the middle of dense forest or whatever and just hang myself there. I don't think I'll be found for a while. Right. And 
I think the whole purpose of this was for him to not be found. So wouldn't you say so? I would, actually. This reminds me of, um, what is it? It's Suicide Forest in Japan where people mm-hmm. go to to do this themselves. And it, that whole intention is to not be found. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And and I see, and this is the thing. I've, you know, personally in my life, I have been affected by suicide. But in most of those instances, they were found. They right. It was meant for it to be found. But yeah. in some cases, I think like in, in a situation like this, they want to be left alone and they want to die in peace, I suppose. And, yeah. um, and I think in a way it's a spiritual situation, but also, well, no one cared about me then who's going to care right. about me now as I hang from this tree right and that's a very unfortunate thought to have a very unfortunate yeah. thought to have but at the same time even though we have clues as to what was going on with this guy before his death but at the yeah. same time we still don't know even in between you know what was going on with him and we still can't confirm that I mean basically you know what we have we'll go through later here but uh, we have all this information about him, but let's kind of go forward from here. So when the sheriff's investigator, his name was Mike James, described the remains, he described them as a white male who was in his late 20s, roughly six feet in height, and it was thought that he had weighed roughly 180 pounds. The man was found wearing black Levi 501 jeans, L.A. gear tennis shoes, and a print dress shirt. And unfortunately, in this situation, he had no identification on his person. So what investigators had pieced together just based on what they saw at the crime scene, more than likely, the man had hung the rope from the tree and he had been standing on some stacked logs and then he just kicked the logs out from under his feet. Now, in some cases of suicide, that is actually pretty common where someone is standing in a chair and then as soon as they get in the right position, they'll just pull up the rope and kick the chair from under them and just drop the rope and let him hang. I hate to describe it like that, but um, it's what usually happens here in this situation. And that's probably exactly what happened here. They probably knew this was likely a suicide. Uh, And we'll kind of focus on the suicide here later on because I do kind of have a theory on that. But um, I have a feeling we have the same theory. Yes, Mm -hmm. I think we do. (laughs) But uh, with that being said, his remains were so decomposed that they believe that his body had remained there for several months until the hunters had come upon him. So we're talking, let's see, the remains were found in September. Mm -hmm. He could have hanged himself in April and then fell victim to the southern heat, which it gets hot down in this Uh, area. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, right now, like yesterday, it was hotter than, yeah, as Alan Jackson said, a hoochie-coochie. So, (laughs) I mean, it it gets freaking hot down here. And I can only imagine the heat and what it did to the body as it was hanging there in in July and all that stuff. But uh, that's another topic for another time. So, just imagine that, like, you know, hanging for that long, like, that, that, that's just gotta be an awful thought to have yeah it, it also says to the state of mind that you have to feel really desperate and really alone to go to that to go to mm-hmm. that tree and and yeah. to take yourself so far away from everything you know and i mean there's signs in this that does if we look at this as a suicide sure you know why not have your identification with you no mm-hmm. no nothing mm-hmm. well that's this 
Yeah, go ahead. Telling. I was just going to say, that's very telling. Yeah, and you know, this brings me back to another John Doe case, the Plaquemine Parish John Doe, yeah. uh, which there's not a whole lot of information on this case because apparently a hurricane had come through Plaquemine Parish, and uh, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but it came through and basically destroyed the files they had on him, and on top of that, his body apparently, like they don't know where he was buried, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, apparently his body had actually floated away to some oh, yeah. something I don't I don't remember the full details but yeah. I do know that it was a suicide and that he had left a note actually he had left a full written note oh. about how his parents didn't care about him and stuff like that and he was just hanging there but it was obvious you know that he wanted to be found because it was from a uh, I think it was a persimmon tree and yeah. people and someone saw this so um, and he was in a pretty dark spot as we can all tell yeah it's very unfortunate sometimes when it comes down to it. And yeah. yeah, to this day, he's still unidentified, just like this young man here. And it definitely brings me a call back to that case, the Plaquemines Parish John Doe. But the big contrast to that case and this case is that three months previous to the finding of his remains, a car was actually found not far from where the remains were later discovered. So we're kind of going back a little bit here. A caller reported to the sheriff's department that it seemed to be abandoned, like someone had just left a car just sitting there. The caller had also reported that the vehicle had North Dakota plates and that there looked to be some clothing in the vehicle and that the car may have been left there overnight. So the DeKalb County investigators located the car, checked to verify that it was not stolen, which it was not, and then they subsequently towed the vehicle to a local garage in Collinsville, Alabama. Because investigators hadn't seen any signs that the vehicle was stolen when it was initially towed away, it was not searched at the time of its initial discovery. So essentially it was a legal seizure here because someone had just left a car on the side of the road. Right. And, well, they can't find the owner. It's just sitting there, so they just sent it to a tow truck. Yeah, no, this actually reminds Reminds me Brianna Maitland's case. Brianna Maitland yes. mm -hmm. had the same thing happened where they didn't initially suspect foul play because it was just an abandoned car at an abandoned building. And they were mm -hmm. like, oh, okay, it's just been left. And they had the car towed away. Unfortunately, it looks like that ended up being a murder so mm. or a scene of a crime. So it's a very – that's what this reminds me of is that – and I was actually really unaware that this was a very common practice that – Yeah. I, I guess I had always assumed if you left your car on the side of the road that someone – like police would look through it. I guess I, mm -hmm. I thought that, but – I'm not sure what the legality of that is, so maybe they can't. Yeah, I think it's, you know, you'd have to have a warrant to be able to do that. That's what and... I was wondering, if you would actually have to have a legal warrant for that, so... Yeah. And and on top of that, too, you have to remember, too, they didn't appear, it didn't appear to be suspicious. So, right. Uh, they probably didn't even give it a second look. You know, they were just like, all right, well, this car is just taking up space. Get it moved to another location. Get it, get it to the tow yard. Right. So, uh, on that note, though, when they kind of recalled this vehicle and, you know, in the state it was found, and, and it's actually unknown because we don't have the case file in front of us, unfortunately. Right. It's unknown how they recalled this incident, but DeKalb County investigators did end up locating the, the car that they had found months prior. They had located it just to see if they, there might be a chance that this car belonged to the man. After searching this vehicle that had been sitting at the garage for nearly three months, investigators discovered a Pizza Hut receipt from August of 1991, a piece of paper with the phone number of the St. Benedictine's Abbey in Coleman, Alabama, as well as two birth certificates from Washington State. 
Additionally, a ticket stub from Smith Lake, which is located near Coleman, had been located in the car. Now, here's where this case begins to take a little bit of a turn, because this is something that, like I said, this case has barely been covered in yeah. any other podcast. But this is where this case ends up taking an interesting turn. So when they locate these birth certificates, they looked a little off. I, I want to go ahead and go back to that for just a second here because you locate two birth certificates in the car and you think that's going to be the golden ticket to figure right. out who this guy is. But actually, it only brings up more questions because these two birth certificates, they came from Washington State. One of them was a blank birth certificate, which how do you get the stock for a Washington State birth certificate? That is one of my biggest questions in this case is how do you get I the stock? The legal stock yeah. of a blank birth certificate. That leads me to believe that this guy may have had some kind of connection, possibly in Olympia, where someone was able to print off birth certificates or he might have worked in a hospital. I don't I don't know how, you know, birth certificates work. But Yeah, yeah. there's some definite signs of fraud going on here that mm -hmm. Especially in the early 90s, 80s, it was a little easier to duplicate those. Um, I think sure. it was just like getting fancy cardstock and then they were printing them off with like oh. high-end printers. Mm -hmm. um, I believe, but don't, you know, I could be wrong, but I think that's how a lot of these were done. I know it's similar to what they were doing with counterfeiting mm -hmm. at the time for counterfeiting bills. So to me, it sounds like, why do you have two birth certificates on you? No one has two <laughs> yeah. and a blank one. But um yeah. Yeah, you know, that was the thing I, that caught my attention, too, where it was like, wait, what? Yeah, I, I have a theory that I want to say at the end of that. Go for oh, it. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I have well, several. We probably are all in the same vein for that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and that's the thing, too, is like, you know, you have two birth certificates. One is blank, and then the other one is a forged birth certificate. Now, prior to researching this case, I have never even heard of the term forged birth certificate. Um, so, and I'm assuming it's just a fake, basically. Mm -hmm. And Yep. Uh, and this uh, fake birth certificate, this forged birth certificate, had the name of Damon Hunter on it. Along with that birth certificate set, investigators also discovered what looked to have been a threatening note that was written that described a robbery scenario. And I'll go ahead and recite this note. The note states, I have a gun. If the cops come, I will kill everyone in here, then myself. Put all the 50s, 20s, and 10s in a large envelope with this note, quickly and calmly. So when you see a note like that in an abandoned car, one of your very first thoughts have to be, mm -hmm. holy crap, what did I just come across here? What, what did right. I just come across? Now you have two birth certificates, one blank, one forge, and now you have a robbery note. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think as an investigator, it is pretty, at that point, you would look at this case and say, so this is probably a criminal, mm -hmm. not... Oh, and then you kind of are looking, our victim is a criminal. And that's kind of a, that's a weird place to be in as an investigator because mm -hmm. uh, you're still going to investigate the crime. But it adds a whole different layer because now you have a John Doe yeah. who is a criminal, which means you're looking for aliases. They were obviously doing fraud. So it's like nothing is going to be what you expect it to be. Nothing. Right. And no information is going to be trustworthy in this case. Mm -hmm. I, I completely agree with that. I mean, you've got a lot of um, interesting aspects to look at here, mm -hmm. especially as we get a little further into 
this episode because now already we are suspecting this guy was involved in some shady shit here. Yeah. And it's it's only going <laughs> to bust wide from here. And Ash, you just mentioned you had a possible theory here. Yeah. So when I first read about the birth certificates, what I was thinking, and now that we're talking about the note as well. Yeah. So my theory was that this guy might not have been a criminal. This guy might have been running from uh -huh. a criminal. And I was thinking maybe the birth certificate, he had to get out of his house quick. He was like trying to leave somewhere. He had a friend who worked at a hospital or what have you. Mm. was like, hey. I need this birth certificate printed quick. I need a, another one because I'm going to change my name after mm -hmm. so these people can't find me. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. It's It might seem like a big stretch. Well, um, it's, it's funny because, you know, in a way, as I'm going to discuss later here in the episode, I have a theory and it actually kind of involves that. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a very interesting theory that you bring up because it could have been, yes, yeah, someone who needed to get away because either he was wanted or yeah. he owed some money which yeah. we'll be talking about here in a second um or you know he may have just he may have felt trapped and he yep, wanted right. to get away from somewhere mm -hmm. and so at least we can possibly tell that this man was probably from the pacific northwest because these were washington birth certificates unless it was something to throw people off and he chose the washington state birth certificates but he might be from a different area i don't although you know as i'm about to discuss here he was actually seen in the West. So what happened here is that investigators did comb through several leads, including checking with the Washington state officials to see if a Damon Hunter had been born in the state, and they were not able to find anybody. And additionally, there were no former inmates or criminals that were found by that name. So mm. one box has been checked off here. Then next, investigators wanted to trace the vehicle that they had found with the North Dakota plates. So when they did, they found out that a man named Damon Hunter stayed at a hotel in Fargo, North Dakota by the name of the Donaldson Hotel. There, investigators learned that Hunter had purchased a car at the hotel and ended up staying a night there, initially paying $17.50 for one night. Then the next day, he purchases a full week at the hotel, paying $53.75. Sometime after, Hunter ends up leaving the hotel, apparently en route to Alabama. All right, so here we are. We find out the car is actually from North Dakota. These plates mm -hmm. are legit. Huh. It's so weird that they would have everything with the car kind of above board. Mm -hmm. But yet everything that's kind of dealing with this person's identity is sketch at best. Mm -hmm. Sure. And I wonder if they were able to find a title on this car or a registration. I would have been curious to know that too if they had or if they had um, done a VIN or anything like that. Um, you know, one thing I can't help but think is, is that maybe the reason the car is so clean when it comes to like title, everything like that yeah. is because the most likely thing to get you pulled over or get cops to notice you is anything strange with your car. Mm -hmm. If you're driving across the country and you've conducted some shady business and you know that like if you're wanted, for example, sure. anything with your car, like a lot of criminals have been brought down by a speeding ticket, mm -hmm. an out of state or an out of, um, out of statute in, um, inspection ticket or registration, things like that. Mm -hmm. Such minor traffic infractions can be yeah. the thing that brings down a criminal. And, and sometimes, too, you know, just having a different state tag will get you pulled over for no reason. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Especially if you have a, 
license plate in Washington, Oregon, or California, and you're ending up, you know, going east, and they're like, okay, let's, let's see what what's going on with this here? guy. Yeah. Yeah, especially considering, you know, these are three states that legalized marijuana, so, yep, you know, right. you want to double-check, make sure this guy ain't smuggling anything. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's such a common thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, at first I was like, huh, I was kind of surprised by that, but then actually now the more I think about that, I'm like, actually, the one thing you would want to be clean is mm-hmm. that car. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and it seems like, you know, this Damon Hunter character played it safe here mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, we, like I said, we don't have the file in front of us, and there was not a whole lot of information on the internet to determine that they actually found, they identified the guy who sold the car to them. Right. Uh, which it sounds like it was either a resident at this hotel or it was maybe the hotel owner or there might have been a car dealership nearby yeah. the, the hotel. Like, it doesn't clarify that. All we know is that he purchased this car from this hotel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my biggest question, though, is how did he end up in North Dakota? Like, mm-hmm. like how did he even get there to begin with? Because I, I do know that... You know, Greyhound was probably running out there, or Trailways was running out there probably around that time, too. So it's a possibility that he may have gotten a bus ticket or right. um, or some somehow he got there. Yeah. That's probably one of the bigger questions that will need to be answered once they identify this guy at some point. Like, mm-hmm. how yeah. did this guy get here, and why did he run? Why did he—why did we find this, like, situation here? Mm-hmm. Why? The other big question that I have for both of you, I guess, is why do you think, I mean, I guess you can look at this case in two angles. You're looking at it in a criminal's perspective, right? Mm -hmm. And then you're looking at it as your average Joe. Um, So why would he get one night stay and then decide to purchase a full week after? That's the part that kind of stuck out to me. That's true. I hadn't really thought of that. Yeah. Maybe they were having to wait. He was having to wait longer to process the car. Probably. Because, that, that could be a possibility. Yeah. You got to get to the DMV. Back then in 91, mm-hmm. it wasn't an easy process. It's, sure. You know, it took Still something. not easy. Oh, no. We all <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> you still have to wait. And you didn't have the access of just being able to do it online like you do now to register, to yeah. do all of the things that needed to be done to make the car legal. You had to wait. So, mm-hmm. actually, that kind of makes sense. So, maybe he thought he was going to do it in a day, and he couldn't. Mm-hmm. And then had to wait it out, so that's why. Yeah, there's that. Or also it's a possibility, too, that, you know, he knew he was probably coming toward the oh. end of his life. Yeah. And he just decided to, you know, go go crazy, you know, just right? uh, do you. Yeah, well, what do they say? Treat yourself? Yeah. Treat yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. what I was kind of thinking, too, is maybe, maybe this person initially didn't want to commit suicide, you know? They yeah. kind of... Bought the the first night, thought it was going to happen the first night, and then kind of Mm. got scared, backed away, and then just decided to get the full week and just kind of go from there. Maybe the plan was to do it there. Possibly, yeah. Oh, I hadn't thought of that. Maybe do like a Lyle Stevick situation, you know, hang yourself in the closet of the hotel. Right. Yeah. Again, Mm -hmm. it's still that anonymous kind of place that they were looking. So it does fit. That makes sense. Which, on an interesting note, since I brought up Lyle Stevick's case, you know, he's, you know, since been identified. Right. um, You know, I actually uh, drove by that hotel in Amanda Park, Washington once. It, um... It's definitely a very eerie little town yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard when you have those shadows of crimes like that, which they just sit there, you know, they linger, they mm-hmm. make their mark. Yeah, absolutely. And 
So yeah, and it's definitely possible that he wanted to do it there. And you know, if and not that I've ever contemplated it, but if I was possibly someone who wanted to commit suicide, North Dakota is a very beautiful place. Maybe right, yeah. he wanted to do it in a very you know beautiful setting, uh, somewhere away from people. Because I mean. And on top of that, North Dakota is not really that populated. It's not a no. like a, a booming state like New York or Florida. No, it's, it's like uh, Vermont. It's, yeah, exactly. rural. We're rural states. Yeah. We're very, and even mm-hmm. like the area of Alabama, he ended yes. up doing it in is mm-hmm. rural. And that so is maybe... a very yeah, very rural area. Yeah, also, so maybe... I, have, I have one other thought. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, my last thought on this yeah. one There's... night and then week. Um, could it be possible that he was waiting for somebody? Like if this was a criminal situation. That is actually very interesting. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's a possibility that he knew somebody in Fargo or he, you know, was waiting, as you're mentioning here. Um, Possibly the fact is he might have actually been planning on going with somebody to Alabama or something or teaming with somebody to do maybe a heist or something here and there. And that way he wasn't doing it alone, but maybe perhaps said person had flaked. Yeah, because there was that robbery note. Like, this person could have been like, okay, I'm going to rob this place. I'm going to get out of here this one night. And then he got there, was like, hmm, there's two gas station attendants. I'm going to wait this out a little bit, see Mm -hmm. what happens during the week, and then decided to leave. It wasn't going to work out. Yeah, exactly. It's a very interesting thought, too, because, you know, we're looking at someone who, once again, two birth certificates, one blank, one forged, Mm -hmm. and a robbery note. Yeah, the robbery note's the interesting part to me. So I used to be a banker in a former life, a bank teller. Mm -hmm. And I read this note and all I can think of is this sounds like a bank robbery note. Everything about it, because we were trained sure. that they would send more so than a than a convenience store robbery. To me, this seems like a bank robbery. The the leaving of the note and wanting the and the request for the fifties, twenties, and tens in a large envelope. That sounds like they were going to rob a teller drawer, and they were smart enough to know that they weren't going to get the vault. Right. And so they were looking to get quick cash and go. To me, that's oh, yeah. It's it screams robbery of a bank versus um, a store. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And in stores, it's mainly just a holdup, you know. Right. A uh, big scene and everything. So yep. mm-hmm. from my experience, you know, researching cases involving, you know, gas station robberies, most of them tend to be holdups, just a, a very public Generally. holdup followed by emptying the cash register and rolling. So, I mean, yeah, it it just doesn't, yeah, this doesn't seem like he was planning a Jiffy store down the street right. or something. Mm-hmm. It was going to be, it was going to be a bank or a place, a place, a financial institution that had mm-hmm. a lot of money. Yeah. It's just the plural in the 50, in the note, the 50s, 20s and 10s. To me, that just is like, yep, mm-hmm. he was going to rob a, a teller. It's just amazing how, you know, we consider all of these factors. Right. But then there was another angle, you know, especially after the, the North Dakota leads uh, started to fail. There was another angle here. So you remember there was a phone number that was found in the car. Oh, it belonged right. to the St. Benedictine Abbey Shelter in Coleman. Now, I want to give everybody a side note here that this abbey is actually still in operation today. And it is known as the St. Bernard Abbey. So. So it's interesting to note that because yeah, like this is like like I, and, and and like I'm not necessarily familiar with how these work because I'm not right. Catholic and I've never had to um, do anything with the Catholic Church. But I, I would assume that they probably have a shelter or they help 
people who are in financial stress and they might have a food bank. I'm not sure how this particular Abbey rolled, but when investigators did try to reach out to the Abbey, someone did talk to the investigators and they did remember someone calling this Abbey and the person described the caller as a white male. And this happened around the summer of 1991. The man appeared to be in a financial situation saying that he had been assaulted by people he owed money to for an unknown debt burden. He went on to tell investigators that the man had said the same people who threatened him had also threatened his parents. He was contemplating robbery to get that money. So this goes back to Ash's theory here right? about was he running from something? Was he running from somebody that he owed money to? And were they on the hunt for him? Is it possible that he got a lead in North Dakota saying that these people, these debtors he owed money to were in the area and they are on a hot track on him? Like, right. are, are they hot on his tail? Like, this kind of really screams, uh, I need to get the hell out of here, right? Yeah. For real. Right. Or we could even go a step further, too, and say, what about, what if he was, so they had threatened his parents, so what if he was going to go do this sure. robbery? They had actually orchestrated all of this, and they were like, here's this note, here's where you're supposed to go, and then Ooh. you need to do these steps, and then we'll release your family, and what mm-hmm. if they didn't? Right. This actually uh, reminds me of the collar bomber. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. Collar the, bomber. The Brian, the Brian Wells incident. Uh, I believe he was which, given a note to go rob a bank as well. He was. So remember in the Brian Wells situation, he was actually kidnapped in a way. He, right. he He got sent to a house to deliver pizza because Brian Wells was a pizza a delivery man and apparently according to the case information brian wells was held at gunpoint they strapped a bomb collar on him yep. gave him a note and a cane that had like a single shot sh- uh, shotgun bullet in it yep. and told him to rob this bank he goes there robs the bank and then suddenly cops come and he's sitting there with this bomb collar around Ugh, his neck and i remember watching this graphic video on yeah it, uh, and it i mean so i remember the first time i heard about that case was america's most wanted yeah and they were talking about the case and then they would offer details on it and it was a very intriguing one and then netflix got the right to do a documentary on it yeah and that was when they aired the uncensored version of that bombing Oof, where yeah. basically the bomb just explodes and his head didn't blow off but like yeah you could see it, it was a pretty graphic situation yeah absolutely mm-hmm. absolutely this poor man had i mean he had just been doing his job like yeah mm-hmm. so anyone can find themselves in that kind of situation and so yeah. i mean i don't know do they ever solve that case i don't know if they ever did well they have persons remember. of interest they have and, persons um, of interest but uh, actually i think if i'm not mistaken two of the individuals have since died ah. it's an old yeah it's an older case it's not it wasn't any time recently but yeah it's an interesting one that was exactly what i thought of too though was the common mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that oof, which has always freaked me out on a deep deep level there's something mm-hmm. about it yeah but uh i don't know that i could kind of get behind that a little bit that maybe this guy was was in a situation that wasn't necessarily of his making but was it's his actions really make it sound like he didn't want to do this yeah i don't know if that makes sense 
The other thing I mm-hmm. thought is is the contact with the church. What if he was Catholic sure. and wanted yeah. to confess his sins? Mm-hmm. Possibility. I mean, yeah. I mean, anything is really possible at this point. Yeah. I mean, know, it's all all interesting yeah. on the table, but yeah, and it's a possibility the man was religious, or he may have actually been used to a transient lifestyle where he knew if he got into like a bigger town, he knew there were shelters or True. places he could go for help to you know relieve his situation. Uh, and and I think that might have also been the case. But in a situation like this, after a while, I'm sure that just gets tiring and boring. And, Mm -hmm. you know, after a while, you want to kind of better yourself. But then sometimes you just feel like you can't. And then, Mm -hmm. well, that leads to some very unhealthy thoughts. Right. Absolutely. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it it happens a lot. So. So, yeah, like, you know, we don't really have a whole lot here after that. Like, that's basically as far as I can go on the Internet. And unfortunately, you know, yes, it's a very brief case to talk about. But. It's very important to talk about because this is one example of, of a case that a lot of people should not forget because just because there's little information about him or and stuff right. like that, we've got to at least get these cases out there. I think exactly. it's the most important part of it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Everyone deserves mm-hmm. their name. Everyone. Yep. Yeah. That's what we always but, say. Yeah, absolutely. I mean... And the discovery and release of the note's contents did spark many theories as to just who this unknown John Doe was, who had been found hanging from this tree in DeKalb County. Now, I'm going to share with you guys something. This is my possible theory here. Is it possible that he was actually murdered? Now, considering the supposed threats on his life, Mm. was Damon Hunter's murder made to look like a suicide after being found by his debtors? That's, I I kind of had that thought. I did too. That's the one I lean to towards the most in, mm-hmm. in all reality. There's just something about it. It almost does seem staged, right? His, identi- yeah. his identification isn't around. He's sure. got birth certificates that don't make any form of sense in his car. The name <laughs> no. Damon Hunter, Demon Hunter. Right. Which right. is a very, like, that was the first thing I was like, well, that's a suited. Like, that's mm-hmm. an assumed name. That, and that's what I thought uh, too, is Demon Hunter. It, it sounds Demon so Hunter. close yeah. to, to Demon Hunter. And I find that very interesting because the guy, then we see the phone number for the St. Benedict um, or St. Bernard Abbey, which is interesting because that's kind of that parallel. Um, I I definitely lean towards that. And then just a lot of the stuff, the note. Why also, if he had just robbed a bank, where's the money? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, and and that's the thing, too, is that they say that there's a possibility that it happened. Did it happen for sure? We don't know. It could have happened in a different state and there's still, you know, a robber out there that still hasn't been caught. Sure. Um, but if he had intended to rob a bank in the area, well, the, uh, I believe investigators did try to they look did. and yeah, there were no banks that had been robbed. And if there were any banks that were robbed in like that last, you know, stretch before he died, mm-hmm. uh, they were already apprehended. Right. Right. And yeah. So- the other thing I was thinking when you said, where's the money? Um, if this person owed a debt to somebody, what is he to them? You know what I mean? He's just a loose sure. end they have to tie up. Um, yep. I'm sure he's seen their face like, if he's dropping the money off. Um, right. I mean, I don't know. When, when it comes to big things to do with like drugs and money and all that, I right. mean, these people are just pawns, you know? So mm-hmm. just a loose end they got to tie up and they just so happen to make it look like a suicide. Yeah, yeah, and there are cases all the time that get reopened in recent years because they were listed as a suicide and then come to find out a few years later, especially hangings. Hangings are a very common way mm-hmm. because it's very easy to fake it as right. a suicide. 
And um, because he was skeletal remains, it would have been hard at that time to determine exactly what his cause of death was. So, I, and, and they could and have yeah. hung him still. Right. And that kind of, in a way, could explain the ruralness of this yep. crime scene. He was driven like, out there. So, yeah, he was probably driven out there and lynched. I mean, yeah. And, and that's the thing, too, is that even though we don't know for sure if there was any evidence of a lynching versus a suicide, because, like I said, we don't have the file in front of us. We don't have that important information yeah. we need. Which I would have is, liked to have seen his autopsy yeah. report to see if um, um, what they found for ligature marks on the bones, anything like that. Right. So, yeah. And that um, would have been great to look at at least. But yeah. also we also have to remember too, you know, he was pretty badly decomposed at this point. Right. What would the chances be of finding any kind of evidence like that right. on his body? I, and that's just mm. there. I mean, over a summer in the Alabama heat, like it's yeah. going to be very hard. It's a pretty minuscule detail, but I mean, something that comes to my mind is when I'm walking in the woods in Vermont, I don't just see um, a stack of logs for the most part out in the middle of nowhere. Actually, that's a very good point. Yeah. So how and where he get really wrong? Yeah. Well, it was now, uh, and this is just my thought right here too. If it was a suicide, I could see why. Um, You know, depending on how big these logs were, that is. Yeah. Yeah. It would have to depend on the size. We we don't have crime scene photos to even determine that. No. Which makes this case a little more peculiar in a Mm -hmm. a sense. We don't have the size of the logs, so we can't say for sure it was what he was standing on. Now, if we're talking like medium-sized firewood logs, then Mm -hmm. they would have to be piled up in a specific way. Uh, to where yeah. may, maybe perhaps, his- you know, like uh, in like a pyramid uh, way where he could stand on him and then be able to roll himself, like basically roll himself and- off the pile. Yeah. But 180 but pounds is a lot. That's that Yeah. See, and that's the thing is uh, it's really peculiar. But if it was like big logs, like he found a good spot. Right. Like a log. Then I could see that. But like I said, <laughs> be really yeah. curious on that. It just, AB, yeah, like ABI, you said, you don't have the crime scene photos so it's hard to but that's just it was just like a little detail and i'm like hmm that's interesting because there's fallen over trees and everything like we see that all the time but yeah i mean thank you for not helping us abi (laughs) (laughs) i mean thank you so much i mean this could have been very useful for us and to help Mm. you guys solve this case but you know y'all just wanted to be lagging so we're doing you guys a favor just by even talking about this yeah i I really like this case i yeah it's one of those that intrigues you because you're like are you Mm -hmm. a victim or well no matter what you're a victim because you still oh absolutely no matter what yeah Either either a victim at the hands of somebody or, you or know, a, a victim of the mind. Yeah. yeah. And those are both victims. And mm-hmm. you know, no matter what his crimes were, at the end of the day, like right. everyone I always say everyone deserves their name. Like Yeah. It's not always pretty and it's not always comfortable, but Yeah. And and that's why I say, you know, like and I've already mentioned his name for the third time in an episode of my show. Uh, Abdul Rahman Alhamdan. He was a man who was found strangled in his apartment in Temple Terrace, Florida in 2002. His story is very interesting because he was found, you know, he he had been strangled, but he had also been known to go to some of the really shady areas of Tampa, to prostitution areas, and he would visit adult stores where they had movie arcades. Yeah. And, um, you know, even though he had these vices... 
it doesn't make him a bad person. No, you know, not it's at just all. somebody who had a very unhealthy vice. But did he deserve to die because of said vices? No, not at all. No, and that's kind of the thing, yeah. especially with John Jane Doe cases. You never know. In a way, there's no stigma behind their cases because we don't know who they are. And when you learn, it's like, well, I'm still attached to this person, so I've invested my time in this person, and it does make you empathize with them maybe a little bit more than you would have had you known more about their story right exactly and uh i hope that at some point damon hunter will be identified i mean we've we're getting some very big advances in science now like i think that he will be identified here i didn't see if his dna had been on file did you it is on file it is okay i was curious i meant to look and i forgot yeah and and the funny thing is, is i don't think alabama has a case yet that's been solved using forensic genealogy so he's a prime Uh, candidate for it he could be a prime candidate but i think if any case is going to be the prime candidate in alabama Mm. it will probably be that bibb county case that was in the car accident but i would like to see at least damon hunter get a little bit of uh, a notification on that because right now in fact i want to actually share a case update with some people here oh. on this note about the ashland baby doe case out of ashland oregon uh, it was a toddler that was found in king creek uh, and this is actually breaking news on my end uh so there's been rumor and speculation that this young boy has been identified and this was an email that i got from dr nikki vance uh unsolicited may i add apparently uh there's been this rumor going around that he has been identified however folks this is not the case he's not been identified however his snp profile has made some very interesting discoveries that she refuses to release at this time oh wow so that is actually a very good indication because Parabon is doing this S&P test. So I'm very excited to see what Dr. Vance has. That's amazing. Parabon's also doing the case that I've been tracking. We covered it on our show, but uh, is the baby boy doe case from Vermont. And we have one. Yes, you were talking to me about that. That's my my special case. But uh, it's one of those that every day I'm like, come on. (laughs) It's going to be great, especially when we see these baby doe cases getting solved. Yeah. And I don't know. And I know we're kind of trailing here on a different discussion here, but I think it's an important discussion to have. Mm. Like, I know in those cases, like your case there, you know, there are some cases where we believe, you know, a baby was dumped because it was an illegal abortion or the woman had a birth in order to hide this birth. If there had been no indication she was pregnant, you know, she probably killed the child and dumped it somewhere. Like there was another case, the Mount Kisco baby doe case, which is a very sad one that I've uh, looked into. These baby doe cases are really sad and they're very uh, they unfortunate. But the thing is, is that there's no excuse for killing a baby. You know, I'm all for a woman's right to choose. Absolutely. I am That's 150% yeah. for a right to choose. However, a right to choose does not mean murdering your newborn child right. and throwing yeah. it in a dumpster. I don't right. care how scared you were. Absolutely. I don't care how scared. There's no damn excuse for it. And people who defend these women who do that are just as disgusting, in my opinion. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a really, it's really hard for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. 
what it would take. The only time I can, I wouldn't justify this, but often, uh, you know, some of the cases, it's parents who do it. Not the right, the parents right. of the child, but the parents of the parent. Exactly. Or uh, the one who gave birth. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's still murder. It is yeah. absolutely yeah. murder. Absolutely. But exactly. that's the only time I would exonerate and the parents. And one thing that Nat and I didn't think about when we were recording the Baby Doe case mm-hmm. is postpartum depression. Sure. That's yeah, something sure. that we oh, sure. Mental health didn't even think of because, I mean, I'm not a mom. I'm a dog mom. <laughs> um, I'm a dog Nat's, mom. Nat's not a mom either. I've never experienced postpartum depression, and I don't really know anybody in my close circle who has. Sure. Um, so that's like the one other thing that we were like, okay, so a child, like a 15-year-old, whatnot, that had a baby and you didn't want to put it up for adoption, didn't want to let have anybody know that they're having a child, the parents or postpartum depression or something yeah. on that line. Mm-hmm. I mean, still, even when you think about that, that it is... Whew. Those cases are the worst. They're, oh, yeah. Yeah, they I think are. the one the, thing that comes from those, and I think there, there are cases that are most likely to get public attention. And mm-hmm. the reason I, I point that out is is that we are much more empathetic to, to cases where it's children as a, right. as a society. Same. Yeah, mm-hmm. same. You know, we'll look mm-hmm. at a case of like Delta Dawn as a prime example. Sure, perfect um, example. We've all followed that case for years, and then it recently mm-hmm. broke not that long ago, <laughs> and which is amazing and fantastic. She has an identity now. Sure. But what those cases teach us is that with the kid doe cases, it draws attention to the adult doe cases. And that is one benefit, too, because then we start to think, oh, wow, I felt all of this pain for this child. I see this other case and it's an adult. Now I feel this pain for them. And I can understand that relationship more because it's that I think it is just that innocence of those child cases Mm -hmm. that get you. Yeah. Whether you're a baby who was dumped or someone who lost your way, lost your way and didn't realize that you would go so low that Mm -hmm. it felt like you couldn't live anymore. It doesn't matter. Or you were just a man who had some terrible vices in your life. Right. You deserve a little justice and you deserve your name back if you're a doe. And yeah, I mean, and the thing is, is that, you know, us talking about him being murdered possibly is is a theory. Yeah. I mean, it's not fact. It's a theory. I, I wish to clarify, but we can never eliminate anything in a case like this, especially when we don't know a whole lot about the case. Um, right. And and you, you two know this because a while back you had me on your show yes. talking about Finley Creek Jane Doe. Mm-hmm. And we don't know a whole lot about her. She's very, it's a She's very big one. mystery. Yep. Yeah. And I just, um, I think about her a lot. And I always wonder what kind of woman she would have turned out to be, um, you know, had she been able to live her life to the fullest. It's so mm-hmm. funny that you say that every time, because yeah. uh, we're all in cases nonstop all the time. Mm-hmm. Anytime I'm in the 1970s, and sometimes I just make, I find myself there just looking. Every time I look, I yeah. see it, a young woman's face. I always look at it to see if it's her. Like to mm-hmm. see if, you know, mm-hmm. if you see her where you're like, yeah, is that her you, eyes? You know, yeah, that case and gets you, you. And yeah, and you, uh, I remember recently you started a text message chain with me and Mel Jetterberg and uh, yeah. we started talking about the woman from Canada. Yep. And and it's a very good thought, definitely. And uh, actually Mel is looking into that. So oh, nice. we'll, uh, we will see what we can find out of that. But yeah, like, I mean, I think honestly, no one should ever deserve to die without their name. Mm-hmm. And I think 
no one should deserve to die, period. Unless, well, unless you're a pedophile or a rapist, as I always say. Yep, that's yep. kind of our line, too. Yeah. Trash humans. <laughs> <laughs> no filter here on No, uh, on, on no. no. Uh, if yeah. you're a bad human and you do bad things, bad things should happen to you. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Part of the statement there. Like, exactly. Yep. And yeah, so Damon Hunter, we just don't know his story. We don't know if he was a bad guy. I mean, he could have been a very good person sure. who was just in a wrong situation Man. and a tough pickle. And we've all been there. I or think. young. And, young and dumb. Yeah, and young. Young and dumb didn't think he had options. It's just very sad to see a situation like this with Damon Hunter. And I wish he knew that he probably would have had a support team with him had he actually sought the help he needed. And besides the fact about theories, as I mentioned, they're just theories. All we know right now that this was a suicide. And I just wish that there were more people that could have supported him uh, yeah. before he decided to do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because um, also, too, sometimes you know you have the support system. And I'm going to also talk about a personal situation here, too, in a second. So trigger warning. Uh, but, um, yeah, like, you know, people people who know that they have the support system sometimes don't utilize it. Right. And, and it's no fault of their own because sometimes we don't know what battles people are dealing with. Um, my situation, uh, one of my old roommates from Seattle, uh, he was actually a good friend of mine before Seattle. He, we lived in Florida together. All of us lived in Florida and, uh, he was from Georgia and, uh, in 2015, he invited me to Seattle to come live with him and his friends, uh, and offered me a great place to stay. Thanks to him, I was able to, you know, spread my wings a little bit and, um, and actually live my life in the Northwest for a great five years. And um, I have no one to thank but him. And while he was in Seattle, he met a man. Um, and he, he met his boyfriend, who eventually became his husband. And then they moved to Nashville. And they got a house just outside of Nashville in a town called Murfreesboro. Well, a few years later, his husband killed himself. I don't know how it was done. But I remember talking to him the night after it had happened. And we talked for a good long while, um, you know, reminiscing about you know, time, our time in Seattle and catching up with each other. In fact, it was on my way back to Florida. Uh, I was um, on my way to having to transition because of COVID. And then I told him, I remember one of the last things I told him was, you know, if there's anything I can do for you, it doesn't matter what, let me be there for you. I want to be your friend, and I know we've lost contact over the years, but I want to be there for you. And he said, yeah, I want to get together soon. Thank you for reaching out. And then a few months later, I get a notice on my Facebook that he had killed himself. And it was a very, very sad situation because yeah. of the personal connection I had with him. And he was such a good person, uh, someone mm -hmm. who didn't deserve that. Absolutely. And, um, yeah. And in fact, because of that, I ended up reaching out to some other friends, uh, mutual friends that we had and we caught up and yeah, it was a very, uh, sad situation. Um, but ultimately I don't think he died a suicide. He died of heartbreak and he died with his husband the night it happened. 
Uh, Absolutely. That makes total sense to me because their whole lives were together and he didn't know how to Mm -hmm. be without him. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's how I looked at it. I mean, and, you know, for what it's worth, um, it seemed he had actually a really good time, you know, prior to all that. Like he was able to meet with his friends and communicate with people. And I think he realized he had a big support system. Yeah, exactly. And and he killed himself, like, I think it was two months after it had happened. So, like, mm-hmm. I I think that sometimes we just don't know how hard the battle is. Even though you have the big support groups, you have the big support system, sometimes in the end, it's not your decision to make. It's mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes that darkness is just so deep. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard for people to see outside of it. Yeah, very. Whew, all right. Ugh. Off suicide watch here. I know. I was like, <laughs> uh, but yeah. So on that note, uh, you know, we don't know what Damon was going through mm-hmm. that day in DeKalb County, and what we want to know is who was Damon Hunter and why did he do what he did, and whether he did it for the wrong reasons or, you know, just did it because he wanted to do it. That's not for us to judge. This was just a man with problems and this was his only solution, I believe. So, um, that's pretty much all we can discuss at this point, because I mean, there's you and I, we've done some extensive research on this case yeah, and we've not been able to really find much, even in newspaper oh. articles in, uh, it was kind of the, yeah. it's very surface level stuff. Um, and it's, it was covered, but it was very kind of the same yeah. stuff over <laughs> and over, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I hope at least this information that we're sharing with you guys, even yeah. though it is recycled information, I do hope that it's something that people can uh, hear and they can be able to research it a little more. Absolutely, because, and that's the way to think about it too, is is that the more of us that look at his case, the more of us that know his story, Yeah, I don't know, the more chances there are of people thinking about theories just like we did and maybe piecing together yeah. just who he was. Mm-hmm. I am, and I'm pretty uh, excited to see what kind of theories we can conjure up through our audience, uh, because I'm yeah. sure, you know, both of our audiences are going to be listening to this episode. So, <laughs> um, I, I'm pretty excited to see what comes of this and, yeah. um, hopefully Damon Hunter's name can be floated around and pretty soon we might get some kind of an identification on this man and understand his life a little more. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that being said, folks, I do want to say that since there's no leads on this case, uh, you can be very helpful in this investigation. Do you know someone who suddenly disappeared out of nowhere, maybe in Washington state around maybe the beginning of 1991? Or did you have a friend that just suddenly dropped off the face of the earth? This could be very helpful in an investigation like this. Does the facial reconstruction that we've republished on our Facebook page and Twitter, does that person look familiar? Do you know who Damon Hunter was? Well, if you do, or if you might have an idea of who this is, you can contact the Alabama Department of Forensic Services. Their phone number is 334-242-3093. Again, that phone number is 334 242 3093. And make sure that you mention case number 91-012099. Again, that case number is 91-012099. And additionally, because this topic is on suicide, 
please make sure that if you do have any thoughts about suicide or if you just need to talk to someone, if you need to talk to someone, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. They are available 24 hours a day and they offer English and Spanish languages. Absolutely. Call 1-800-273-8255. Again, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. Help is available. Speak with someone today. So with that being said, what did you guys think of today's episode? Oh, I thought it was uh, great. It was so interesting. <laughs> it was so it was great to have because normally it's just Nat and I talking cases. Yeah. And we're almost always on the same page with everything. Yeah. Um, so it was really, really cool to talk with you today, Jason, and just get mm-hmm. like a different, different perspective. Yeah, different perspective, different things flowing. You know, it was really awesome. It, it is nice to have a, a third person to bounce ideas off of. It's really mm-hmm. fun. Oh, yeah. We all start thinking of different things. <laughs> Ash and I are yeah. usually, we're sister-in-laws, so we've known each sure. other for most of her, most of Ash's life. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we tend to be in sync a lot. So it's nice to have a different different perspective on that yeah absolutely and uh and the last time i did a three-person show uh was when me gwen berenger and uh, jesse velstra talked about uh, Joni Hall, who went missing in Oregon, which yeah. ended up sparking this big, like, <laughs> this it sparked some big news because after yeah. the episode, we made a FOIA request that got rejected because the records were sealed for 99 years. Oh, and my it led God. To, and, and it led to me being on the Lars Larson show, which is a Portland show. Yeah. And even though, you know, it's Republican, but hey, sometimes, you know, we just... Gotta, <laughs> right, uh, yeah, right. We gotta... <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was very helpful, and it caused a lot of news, basically, when we broke it. So I think we pissed off the Gladstop County Sheriff's Office on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, But they know I'm on their ass now. But uh, it's really, really great... Um, it's really great to have three people on the show, and yeah, uh, super fun. we've got to do this again, definitely. Definitely. Mm-hmm. We'll yeah. have to have you come on, hang out with us over on our site, yeah. too. So. Absolutely. Absolute and pleasure. On, <laughs> and, and on that note, folks, uh, we wanted to let you guys know about the next episode. So the next episode is going to be an interesting one. We're going to be talking about Adam, or Adam Doe, for that matter. Uh, Adam Doe was is the last unidentified victim of Larry Eiler, who was a serial killer in Indiana in the 1980s. And just recently, one of his victims, who was the second to last that was unidentified, he has been identified since. And we'll talk about that case a little bit more in depth. And we'll also offer a brief synopsis of Larry Eiler's reign of terror. Uh, and he actually died in prison, I believe, in 1996 of AIDS. So, like, it was a very interesting case to cover. Um Yeah, so I'm looking forward to possibly having Nick on the next episode with me. After that episode, I might have a very interesting episode for you all, but I'm going to keep that under wraps for right now because this actually is going to hit a little close to home, something I'll explain later. But uh, you'll want to listen to that. So on that note, though, guys, if you enjoyed this episode of From the Vault, make sure to let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or send us a message on Facebook at facebook.com slash from the vault pod. And additionally, you can follow us on Twitter at 
from the Vault Pod. Thank you, Nat Nash, for joining me. And uh, you guys, you know, y'all do a great, like I said, y'all do a great podcast. Uh, I like y'all enough. I think I'm going to go ahead and plug your podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, y'all can listen to their show. It's called Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. And for the last several episodes, you know, y'all have been a sponsor because y'all helped me get that all uh, the time. Case yeah. out there, uh, the uh, the Finley Creek case. So anytime um, we would absolutely we are, love being a sponsor of that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We should, we should have you do one of ours. <laughs> sure, we can do that. I can do that. I mean, uh, I got the radio voice, so <laughs> yeah, you got a good old voice. Yeah, um, yeah. No, it's absolutely absolutely our honor so oh yeah definitely yeah well i i definitely appreciate y'all for you know spending your free time with me and uh talking about this case and yeah so if you guys are interested in nat nash's podcast uh crime time nerds a sister podcast you can go wherever you listen to your favorite podcast at hell wherever you're listening to me at right after this <laughs> jump over to their podcast and see what they got to offer they've got a lot of great cases and a lot of the cases that they cover are centralized around vermont but occasionally they do cover cases like in Oregon, like the we Finley do. Creek we case, like to so. venture out, so <laughs> we've got we like to give a little bit of everything, but we primarily focus mm -hmm. on unsolved cases as well, and Jane and John Doe cases. Absolutely. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to more episodes, and uh, yeah. I'll be taking a listen as well. And uh, also, again, special thanks is going to go out to Zach Bebo, who's been helping me with my audio production and <laughs> making me sound all swell and what is it? Svelte? Svelte. 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 <laughs> there we go. Yeah, boy. I <laughs> long. <laughs> But all right, other than that, and also, again, thank you to CrimeWatchers.net for sponsoring the show today. And I do want to also give a very special thank you to Kemster for allowing this podcast to have its own thread at Crime Watchers. So that is a very awesome thing for them to do. But yeah, other than that, folks, uh, that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you again for joining us. I'm Jason Futch, and I will see you on the next episode of From the